I'm Fausto Pocar, I'm uh, a P.O.L. judge in the International Criminal uh, Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and uh, past president of the tribunal. Uh, today I will uh, talk about uh, the uh, progressive blending of uh, legal traditions in the procedure of international criminal courts with special reference to the ICTY. Um, while uh, the distinction between common law and civil law traditions is certainly to be regarded as the summa division in comparative criminal procedure, it is broadly accepted that neither the inquisitorial nor the accusatorial system exist in a pure form. Rather, national criminal procedures may only be predicated in terms of dominant models. In particular, international scholars have argued in recent years that criminal procedures of Western jurisdiction have reached a point of convergence in which national systems from one tradition have adopted features from others such that the gulf between the systems is no longer as deep as it once was. Nevertheless, international scholars are aware that differences between juridical cultures often play such a significant role in defining the identity of a procedural system that even when a domestic system adopts features belonging to a different procedural tradition, the result of such an operation is often a reinterpretation. In other words, although most of the modern legal system have attributes of both the civil law and the common law traditions, they are usually based predominantly on one or the other. In this framework, the procedure of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the first international tribunal established by the United Nations, is to be regarded as completely sui generis. It combines features of the common law and civil law systems in an arrangement distinctly different from any domestic procedural system. In analyzing this particular hybrid system, uh, which uh, has been later imported by the ICTR, the Tribunal for Rwanda, and from there by the Sierra Leonean Criminal Special Court, one cannot look solely at one of the two procedural traditions. Rather, an analysis must take into account both traditions. Uh, somehow, a sort of synthesis between common law and civil law system has been reached. I will focus on the factors conducive to the blending of the common law and civil law legal traditions in the procedure of the ICTY and we'll try to analyze the results of such a process. Is it a clash or a sophisticated compromise? Does it do the bare minimum in amalgamating the systems or does it capture the best of both worlds? Some questions will remain open, of course, but I'll try to answer them. Let me first say that the first version of the rules of the tribunal reproduced the typical features of accusatorial systems. 
in this system envisaged by those rules, the prosecutor is in charge of initiating the investigations and collecting evidence in support of his case, while the burden of gathering exculpatory evidence is on the defense. No room is left for a pre-trial judge to direct the investigation. Rather, judges are only involved in the investigative phase if and when an arrest warrant or another order supporting investigation is needed or when they must review indictments submitted by the prosecution, confirming or dismissing each count. While the parties were bound by strict rules on disclosure that permitted full knowledge of the materials gathered by the opposite party, no dossier containing witness statements or other case-related documents was provided to the judges. In this way, the strict division between mere information and evidence typical of the common law system was preserved. As for the actual trial, the presentation of the case was the task of the parties and evidence was presented in the classical common law uh, scheme of uh, examination, cross-examination, rebuttal and rejoinder. Further, trial proceedings were organized according to the typical bifurcated structure of the common law, which consists of uh, a first part that focuses on uh, culpability and, in case of conviction, a subsequent part focusing on sentencing. If a plea of guilty was entered by the accused, only sentencing hearings will follow and no trial proceeding will take uh, place. No trials in absentia were uh, allowed and uh, finally the position of the defendant oscillates between the two poles of self-representation and the prohibition on giving statement at trials if not as a witness in the case when representation was uh, granted. Uh, notwithstanding this clear common law imprint on the first version of the rules, there were at least five important deviations from the model typical of the common law adversarial system. First, there was no provision of a jury as a finder of fact. Second, no technical rules were set governing the admissibility of evidence. Third, provision was made for the tribunal to have the option of ordering the production of additional or new evidence proprio motu. Fourth, no space was given to the practice of plea bargaining or the tool of granting immunity, each of which are widely used in common law. And finally, the right of appeal presented an extensive scope unknown to the common law tradition, providing that both the accused and the prosecution could appeal on matters of both law and facts. This choice, this last choice, however, was made not by the judges, but the drafters of the statute, that is, by the Security Council. Furthermore, since 93, the rules, uh, and that may be a curiosity, have been amended 45 times pursuant to Article 15 of the statute. 
In the course of this process of evolution, the tribunal has adopted a number of features typical to civil law. From the envisagement of a significant role for the judge prior to the commencement of the trial, to the introduction of mechanisms for tendering and admitting written rather than oral evidence, and from the renouncement of a bifurcated structure of proceedings to the shift of the position of the defendant at trial towards alignment with the civil law tradition. At least three factors are key reasons for this discernible shift towards the civil law model. I will briefly uh, refer to these uh, three factors. First, uh, I would mention the factual and legal complexity of the cases before the tribunal. Uh, one of the weaknesses of the adversarial model is its tendency towards lengthy proceedings. This tendency results from the requirement that all evidence be scrutinized orally through examination and cross-examination. The problem of length is exacerbated in international criminal trials where the complex crimes being dealt with are framed with complex historical, political facts and involve between victims and perpetrators hundreds of people. Normally we are dealing with mass crimes. The second factor that pushed to change the rules is the specificities of substantive international criminal law. Um, one of the typical features of substantive international uh, criminal law is the distinction between base crime, for instance murder, and the so-called chapeau element, that is, for instance, the spread and systematic attack against the civilian population, in the case of a crime, a crime against humanity, which makes the murder an international crime as distinct uh, from a domestic, a merely domestic crime. Now, uh, the factual basis, the chapeau elements, for many cases the tribunal overlap. And it became clear, even uh, after the first cases before the tribunal, that there would have been a great deal of repetition of the same evidence establishing base crimes for trial to trial. One of the goals of the amendments to the rules was to set up mechanisms to avoid the need to repeat the presentation of the same evidence before the tribunal, without, of course, jeopardizing the fairness of the trial. And uh, this uh, uh, mechanism inevitably take into account uh, using evidence gathered in case A uh, in a case B, which would be absolutely contrary to a common law system of procedure where facts have to be proved every time orally in all of the cases. The third factor that, uh, um, uh, that provoked a shift towards civil law traditions um, is linked uh, to the legal background of the judges, simply. Judges come from uh, different cultural and legal backgrounds. The uh, unavoidable differences between the education legal experience of international judges have influenced the procedures in uh, different ways.
On one hand, these differences have conditioned the interpretation that judges give to certain procedural rules. And even when a rule is shaped as a common law rule, if interpreted by a civil law judge, may, uh, may have a different meaning and have a, a, an impact that can be approached to civil law uh, traditions. Um, on the other hand, judges have a tendency to amalgamate through amendments, after amendments of the rules, the different legal tradition to which the judges belong. It's fairly possible that at the very beginning the majority of the judges were common lawyers and later on uh, more civil law judges were elected by the General Assembly. And this changed the composition of, the, um, of those who are entitled, who are tasked with uh, making the rules of the Tribunal. The Security Council did not give any rules of procedure and evidence to the Tribunal, but tasked the uh, Tribunal itself, the judges, with adopting rules of procedure and evidence. And that's why judges could amend the rules through uh, many years. Now, uh, in light of this scenario, um, can we say that features from different legal traditions fit well together in the rules of the tribunal? Um, it has been observed that uh, uh, the choice to depart from the common law's purely oral approach to proceedings has not been counterbalanced by the central role that in civil law systems is attributed to an investigative judge who offers guarantees of impartiality that are absent in the prosecutor. It's argued, in other words, that uh, an unsophisticated blending of common law and civil law features in the procedure of the tribunal has resulted in an undue dilution of the rights of the accused. It's also argued that uh, this has occurred in the framework of trials where fairness is second to expeditiousness, which uh, in uh, light of the, our lengthy trials, because uh, sometimes this is due to respect rules uh, of fairness, uh, is certainly not an accurate explanation of what happens here. Others have claimed that attribution to judges of an increased role in managing the trials unduly overlaps with the discretion of the prosecutor. Uh, and some, uh, at the end, uh, have, uh, uh, have stated that, uh, as it is very difficult to bridge the philosophical conflicts between the inquisitorial and accusatorial traditions, international criminal law should go strongly in one direction or the other, rather than trying to blend procedure from the two uh, traditions. I have already said I'm not inclined to agree with such positions, uh, neither as a scholar nor as an insider have I ever observed any confirmation of this thesis in practice. Um, it is true that uh, the blending of different traditions is a difficult uh, exercise. However, 
um, in general, uh, this uh, blending has not led to a violent clash, but to an overall good uh, compromise, a system of procedure specifically tailored to the peculiar features of international criminal law, and nevertheless consistent, although with at least one regrettable exception, with, which I will mention later, with the highest international standards of a fair trial. I will try to analyze some features of the rules that exemplify the hybrid nature of the procedure that is currently in force. Uh, some issues I will take up will uh, aim at demonstrating how importing civil, civil law features into a common law framework did not result in, a, in an incoherent system. Other issues will highlight how efforts to introduce civil law measures in order to guarantee judicial expediency were tempered with instruments aimed at safeguarding the rights of the accused. And uh, finally, some issues will deal with difficulty of reconciling common law and civil law views on appeal. Uh, the first measure that was adopted that uh, leads uh, to a more, uh, to a system more coherent with civil law was uh, uh, adopted in 1998 and uh, was uh, to replace the bifurcated structure of the proceedings with a unified one, where a trial chamber renders a single combined verdict, including sentence. And there is no need for a separate sentencing hearing, except in the case of a guilty plea, where only the sentencing hearing will take place, of course. Um, the departure from the common law tradition on this point, uh, in fact, did not produce any disharmony in the tribunal system. Uh, one has to take uh, uh, into account uh, that uh, the bifurcated structure of the proceedings in common law is a consequence of the presence of a jury as a finder of fact. The purpose of such a solution is to purify the evidence presented to the jury from any unnecessary information concerning the character of the accused, in order to avoid a scenario in which fact-finding becomes polluted by the juror's degree of sympathy towards the personality of the accused. But the ICTI has no jury. It's comprised of professional judges. There is no reason to keep fact witnesses and character witnesses separate. Professional judges are by definition able to discern between the different factors relevant to the different findings. And in practice, the system of combining uh, conviction and sentencing has worked uh, uh, well in, uh, in the practice. Again, in 1998, an important measure was taken, that is the introduction of a pre-trial judge. It did not exist beforehand. Uh, the pre-trial judge uh, is not exactly what a, a, a juge d'instruction would be in uh, the French system or the mere pure civil law system, has no investigatory powers, but uh, rather serves chiefly as a manager of the parties 
in their trial preparation in order to better ensure the expeditiousness, the efficiency of the trial uh, proceedings. The pre-trial judge has a number of instruments, can coordinate communications between the parties, uh, ensuring that they promptly comply with their disclosure obligations, uh, can order them to file briefs containing information about the nature of the case and so on, but uh, uh, cannot, has no role in investigation. It's simply a judge which has certain powers for the preparation of uh, uh, the trial, can uh, uh, take some decisions concerning the number of witnesses, for instance, reduce the number of witnesses or propose to the trial chamber to, um, to um, streamline the uh, procedures. Um, of course, the presentation of pre-trial briefs and uh, exhibit witnesses list is not comparable with the creation of the dossier, typical of the civil law uh, tradition. However, it is uh, uh, clear that the pre-trial judge's role uh, is, has become the more and more important in the preparation of the trials before uh, the tribunal, combining some features of the civil law tradition with the common law uh, tradition. One uh, more recent measure, which is the outcome of several changes in the rules actually, um, has, uh, has been uh, uh, adopted as far as the size of the indictments are concerned. At the beginning, following a typical common law system, the only intervention of the judge and the indictment was the confirmation of the injunction. Uh, the confirmation means that the judge had to check whether there was a prima facie case, but no other intervention was possible by the confirming judge as to the uh, indictment. In 2006, uh, the tribunal amended its rules, uh, giving a trial chamber a number of options in uh, uh, reducing the size of an indictment. The chamber can invite the prosecution to, the number, to reduce the number of counts, can fix the number of crime sites of incidents, can fix the number of incidents, and can direct the prosecution to select the counts upon which to proceed. Can direct the prosecutor, they can order the prosecution to reduce the, um, the number of counts, to reduce the case before the court. Um, as I said, this is the outcome of a number of measures that were uh, adopted through, uh, through the years. And uh, um, this was uh, uh, the, the, the consideration that led to this uh, evolution was uh, the fact that uh, the uh, prosecutor was generally unwilling to reduce the size of the indictments. And on the other hand, the judges considered that uh, uh, indictments comprising too many counts were unmanageable. 
and would lead to uh, clearly lengthy trials, two lengthy trials that risked not to end or to uh, take too many years in contrast with uh, uh, the needs for an expeditious uh, trials. At the end, uh, after having invited the prosecutor to submit um, more manageable trials, the only measure that uh, the uh, tribunal thought possible was to put the responsibility of the chamber itself to reduce the size of the, uh, of the tribunal. It was never done by the chamber as such to decide the counts, but to uh, direct the prosecutor to reduce the number of counts that was done and then eventually it was for the prosecutor to, uh, to do uh, that. Of course, this uh, measure um, have been, has been largely uh, criticized as an undue interference of the chamber with the role of the uh, prosecutor. However, and uh, in a way uh, it is because uh, the, the rule has been eventually adopted by the judges as a measure just to reduce the size of the indictment without keeping the counts that would not be part of the case in abeyance for another case. The other counts are just dropped by the uh, prosecutor in this uh, uh, situation. And this is the way is a measure that interferes with the prosecutor. I would consider that there will be no interference if the other counts could remain for another case. Because in, in that situation, the prosecutor would still be free to bring all the counts before uh, the tribunal. But uh, probably a consideration of uh, the mandate, the, uh, of the duration of the mandate of the tribunal did not allow for this decision by, by the chamber. It remains, of course, that the counts that are dropped by the prosecutor are not tried before the tribunal and could be tried by domestic jurisdictions as not having been tried by the tribunal. They will not come under the rule nebis in idem whereby domestic courts cannot try again what has been tried by the, uh, by the tribunal. But perhaps the most important uh, deviation from common law rules was uh, the progressive um, uh, the progressive uh, uh, preference or at least importance, significance of written evidence in the proceedings. As I said, initially only oral evidence was admitted and uh, the rules uh, reflected this position that uh, evidence should be just oral evidence checked before the court through the uh, witnesses uh, or expert witnesses and the usual system of um, uh, examination, cross-examination and uh, uh, re-examination of the witnesses. Uh, already in 2000 that provision was changed and uh, uh, instead of uh, a provision that said witnesses said in principle be heard directly by the chamber, another provision was introduced saying that the chamber may receive 
evidence of a witness orally or where the interest of justice is allowed in written form, which is a clear deviation from, uh, from the rules, although under the umbrella of the interest of justice, of course. At the same time, a more detailed disposition was adopted, Rule 92-BES, which uh, uh, allows written Western statement to be admitted as long as uh, the statements do not go to acts and conducts of the accused. I already mentioned there is the chapeau element in international crime. So what goes to the chapeau element does not affect the acts of the accused, of the conduct of the accused. It's just the scenario where the conduct of the accused takes place. And the decision was made that this part of the crime, which is not just uh, the conduct of the accused, could be proved also by written statement, provided that the chamber agrees to that, that, um, that uh, it is in the interest of justice, and uh, that uh, um, a chamber agrees to accept the written evidence without cross-examination. Uh, to a certain extent, uh, parties would ask for cross-examination, and it would be for the chamber to decide whether to admit cross-examination or not on, this, uh, uh, on these cases. But the deviation from a pure common rule is clearly, uh, is clearly there. Later on, there have been other rules that have been brought in. First, a rule admitting the possibility of written evidence also when it goes to prove acts and conduct of the accused. But it's a special rule that was first adopted by the appeal chamber and then translated into a written rule. Uh, this is the case where a witness has already been heard in another case or a witness uh, has made a statement uh, that has not yet been checked, but uh, the deviation from the rule, uh, from the system of common law, is just as to the examination in chief. In other terms, if the witness is in court, present in court, declares that the written statement that is before him, is shown to him, reflects fully what he wants to say, the party bringing the witness may skip the examination in chief. The witness will be cross-examined and, as the case may be, re-examined by the party that brought him. But the statement will be taken in writing as examination in chief, as the examination in chief. Here, I believe the deviation from the rule is less significant because uh, the witness is in court. He makes a declaration that the text he presents, he submits to the court, is indeed what he wants to say. And if the party bringing him has no other question, at the end this can be valid as examination in chief. The, uh, the other party will have had the statement, could have considered the statement, and can bring all the question uh, he or she wants to bring. Um, in cross-examination before uh, the court. So uh, uh, is, a, is only a measure of uh, 
time saving, I would say, but in fact, uh, it uh, uh, helped uh, in, uh, it was adopted by, by the appeal chamber in the Milosevic case, and indeed it helped reducing the time of that trial substantially, because cutting the examination in chief, you cut half, uh, 50% of the consideration of a witness. Unfortunately, it was not sufficient to um, speed up the trial to come to the conclusion of the trial before the death of the uh, accused. Uh, a recent uh, measure was also adopted to allow for written evidence in case of statements or transcripts from other cases of persons subjected to interference. Um, unfortunately, it may happen that witnesses are threatened, that witnesses that have already given testimony are threatened because of the testimony they gave if they give a testimony in another case. And uh, um, in these cases, the chamber has a discretion to take the testimony, the written testimony as such. Of course, the margin of deference to the text is different uh, than is the case when uh, um, the witness is, uh, um, is examined in, uh, in court. Um, in the same uh, line, uh, progressively some uh, weight has been given to judicial notice of adjudicated facts. Facts that are adjudicated in another case can be taken in a case without checking them again in uh, uh, the case. The, um, the appeal chamber has stated in these matters that uh, um, um, that uh, a judicial notice of adjudicated facts only establishes a well-founded presumption of the fact, but thus does not bar the other party from bringing evidence against uh, the uh, against the fact. Um, so there is some space for taking judicial notice of adjudicated facts, which would not be the case in common law tradition, but it's a limited, it's a limited uh, um, use that can be made, and indeed chambers made up to now a limited use of this. Now, all what I've said now shows uh, that as to trials, there are some deviations from common law in favor of civil law traditions, whether the blending is uh, good or not, it's uh, of course questionable, but uh, it's certainly uh, something that has to be uh, acknowledged. Um, I will refer briefly to the appeals, because uh, in common law tradition, it is uh, uh, a constant position that the prosecutor has a very limited power of appeal. The defense, of course, can appeal any conviction any sentence, but the prosecution cannot. And uh, only if there is a clear violation of the law, sometimes prosecution is allowed to, um, to um, appeal against uh, a conviction, against uh, a sentence, 
whereby, whereas uh, in, uh, in uh, civil law countries, the prosecution is always allowed to appeal a conviction, because the prosecution acts uh, not as a party, but in the interest of the law, in the, and so is allowed to, apply, to appeal anything. But what is more important, the prosecution is, uh, a prosecutor is uh, allowed in civil law tradition to, uh, to appeal against acquittals, which is completely unknown to the common law tradition. If at a trial somebody is acquitted, is acquitted and the case is finished. Uh, there is no further degree of jurisdiction for the, uh, for the prosecutor. This depends to a certain extent of the fact that the guilt is pronounced by a jury but, and not by a professional judge, but in any event the prosecutor is not allowed normally to, uh, to uh, appeal. Now, the statute of the tribunal allows the appeal of the prosecutor without putting any limitation to it. The rules accepted that and allowed the prosecution to appeal also against an acquittal. Now what happens if the prosecutor appeals against uh, an acquittal? The appeal chamber is tasked with uh, uh, checking the appeal of the prosecutor, considering it, and if the appeal chamber comes to the conclusion comes to the conclusion that uh, the uh, accused uh, is guilty, will have to state that uh, we have to quash the decision of first instance. This has resulted in uh, um, convictions in reversing uh, acquittals before the tribunal in a number of uh, cases. Um, Unfortunately, the case law of the tribunal has not promptly clarified the borders of the appeal chamber's powers in the case of prosecution appeal against acquittals. And uh, the um, uh, jurisprudence of the tribunal is not well settled on this point, although there is uh, a quite a clear trend. But in some instances, the appeal chamber uh, after having found, for instance, that the sentence imposed did not adequately reflect the gravity of the crimes, that's the case, for instance, in Celebici, remitted the determination of the sentence to the trial chamber, sent the case back to the trial chamber, by expressly arguing that this would enable the preservation of the accused's right to appeal. And indeed, in that case, the sentence was increased by the trial chamber and the accused appealed against the new sentence imposed by the trial chamber. In another group of cases, for instance, in the case of General Kirstich, the appeal chamber, after finding an error of law by the trial chamber, simply pronounced that the trial chamber's findings were erroneous and noted in the disposition that the trial chamber had incorrectly disallowed the conviction, but did not enter a new conviction against the accused. Simply stated that the trial chamber had made an error, with no consequence on the accused that might be more in line with the, uh, with the tradition not to allow the prosecutor to acquit against them, but to allow at the same time an appeal chamber to correct an error for future cases. 
for the purpose of future cases. Uh, something like a Supreme Court uh, stating the law for future cases. But in most cases, the, uh, the appeal chamber proceeded to enter a new conviction on appeal. And, uh, or to increase the sentence imposed by the trial chamber, thus depriving the accused of his right to appeal the conviction. Because against the decision of the appeal chamber, there is no appeal. Uh, which is not uh, the case in most uh, civil law countries, where there are normally three degrees. A first degree, a second degree, which is a trial de novo, and then a further uh, appeal as to law. So, in a way, the appeal decision can be appealed uh, even uh, when it's pronounced on appeal. There is a, um, the point is that uh, in doing so, the tribunal, in my view, the appeal chamber violated uh, uh, basic principles of uh, human rights law, clearly enshrined in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which uh, uh, set forth that uh, each sentence, each conviction and sentence uh, entitled the person uh, having received conviction or sentence to appeal. And this uh, means uh, also according to the Human Rights Committee monitoring the application of the Covenant that if a conviction is pronounced on appeal, there must be an appeal against that, uh, uh, that conviction. Um, it would have been possible to uh, harmonize the system, nevertheless, by simply allowing the appeal chamber in cases of, uh, uh, in which it was proved that the acquittal was against the law, was, uh, was not done properly, to just quash the decision and send back the case for retrial, which is one of the possibilities that is envisaged by the rules of procedure and, uh, and uh, evidence. But unfortunately, the appeal chamber did not follow that uh, path, notwithstanding, uh, I must say, notwithstanding my, um, my um, dissenting opinion that I appended in all of these cases on this particular issue. The last point I want to deal with, very shortly, is uh, the possibility of introducing new evidence on appeal. This is clearly not the case in common law jurisdictions. When new evidence is brought on appeal, an appeal chamber can only send the case back to a trial chamber. Uh, on balance, when it happened the first time, the appeal chamber considered that in an international procedure, it would not have been appropriate to, um, it would not have been appropriate to uh, send the case back in all these situations. The trials before the appeal chamber are already lengthy, before the tribunal are lengthy. If uh, exculpatory evidence is brought on appeal, it's easier to have the appeal chamber hear that evidence and as the case may come to a decision to reverse the conviction in favor of, uh, uh, of an acquittal. And that was decided actually in the Cooperage case already in 2002. Uh, the problem is uh, when the, the new evidence uh, 
uh, when the new evidence is not only exculpatory, but may be exculpatory and inculpatory, which will be the standard that the appeal chamber should uh, have in these uh, situations. The decision was made to hear the evidence, but uh, to change the standard, in the sense that uh, when uh, it's exculpatory evidence, the standard the appeal chamber has to follow is whether the trial chamber could have uh, convicted. When, uh, on the contrary, it may be inculpatory, the standard is a would case. If the trial chamber would have convicted, in other terms, the appeal chamber has to check itself whether it would sustain the conviction or not and uh, uh, confirm only in case the appeal chamber is satisfied that, uh, uh, that the conviction is uh, uh, warranted. I could make other examples. I will not do it. There may be others, but I try to give the main, uh, the main features. The, uh, the, what the tribunal has tried to make is to combine traditions, but at the same time respecting the highest fair trial standard and the effectiveness of international uh, criminal uh, justice, which is uh, heavily dependent on the ability of international criminal tribunals to serve justice in a timely and expeditious manner, which, as practice has shown, is not a very easy, is not a very easy task, and not just the practice of this court, but also the practices of the other criminal courts, including the International Criminal Courts, where the trials are already proving to be lengthy and uh, difficult uh, to, uh, <coughs> to manage. Um, the series of examples I've given, um, although they may not be complete, I believe may have provided at least a taste of the fact that within the framework of the tribunal, the blending of civil law and common law has been carried out uh, in a thoughtful manner, which uh, has aimed to address problems specific to the trying of international crimes, and with full awareness of the need to address the tension between strict adherence to human rights standards and the efficiency of international criminal uh, justice. I can conclude that uh, uh, while uh, oil and water may never mix in uh, a science lab, human rights and efficient justice can be mixed and to successful effect in the courtrooms of international criminal uh, tribunals. And uh, if uh, uh, models have to be found for international justice, it's clearly uh, inadequate to take them from entirely for one domestic system. International justice has different connotations, and uh, probably blending the systems may also give the appearance of a justice which is more international.